Good morning. Good to see you today. So let's have a word of prayer before we start. Father, we come to you new, come to you as needy people. There's nothing that we have that you haven't given to us. We're born naked and helpless, and we die the same way. We're so grateful for your grace in our lives. We're so grateful for your son, the fact that you can give us peace in this chaotic, fallen world. Lord, as we open your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and feet and hands to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get started, I'm a little worried. If I end up backing towards that fire hazard over here, <laughs> warn me, because I, you know, I tend to pace. I'm going to try to stay away from that side of the auditorium this morning, but if I end up backing towards it, you can yell stop for me. I don't want to be the cause of a big insurance claim <laughs> up on the stage here. So, uh, Also, before we start, I have kind of three audiences in mind today. Um, and I want to speak to each of those three audiences. One would be the fully committed believer, right? So there, in any church, there are a number of people who are just all in, fully committed. And um, you're one of our audiences today. Then there's the, the unbeliever who's maybe new and who is considering, and I want to speak to you specifically to you today as well. But then there's kind of a third category, and we don't really think about this a lot, but I, and I, I'm not saying this in, in, a, in, a, in a mean way, but there's the dabbler, right? There are those, and any, I, I believe this is true of any church, that in almost every church there are those who aren't sure they're really, really committed. And so they're kind of dabbling. And a lot of times those who aren't fully committed are in that dabbling kind of a mindset because they're not sure they really like everything about Christianity. Christianity asks a lot of us. So when we're going to fully obey Jesus, it takes a lot. It takes everything, correct? And, and there's some that maybe struggle intellectually, right? And so our heart, and actually that's what I, the scriptures would argue is a kind of rebellion against God, where we use the intellectual arguments as an excuse for not submitting to God. And so there are those who, who have those legitimate concerns with the faith. They're ultimately spiritual concerns, but they are intellectual. And then there's a lot with the kind of moral claims the Bible on their lives. And there are a lot of, believe, uh, of dabblers, shall we say, who really like being around Christianity. They might like the worship. They might like the fellowship that you have. But we're really not sure you're all in. And I really want to speak to you as well if you're what I would call a dabbler in the faith. So as part of... As part of uh, just preparing a little bit more for my message this morning. I woke up a little earlier than normal. And so I was like, huh, I'll do something fun just to maybe supplement 
my introduction, and I, I looked up two words, Christmas and stress. And I can tell by, by the reaction that that's a reality, isn't it? So what should be a peaceful, enriching, nourishing time of the year becomes a highly stressful month, two months. And maybe for some of you, it's really not stressful until the bills come due in January. So it was really fascinating because, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the Google thing. So I'm searching through Google, and not one of them brought up anything about the solution to stress being Jesus, right, of the pages that I found. Now, there was some good advice, but here are some of the stressors I found. And by the way, I've been told by Google and whatever article that was on the website this morning that Christmas has been even known to cause a heart attack or two. So that's pretty high stress, right? But here are some of the stressors. Is there money for gifts? Will there be enough gifts? Will my kids like my gifts? Can I keep up with the neighbor's decorations? Will I get along with my family when I get together for Christmas events? Do I have to see that person? Right? And, that, and for some of us, that's funny, but for some of us, that's real. Right? Some of you probably get sweats thinking about the fact that you might need to see one family member or some person during this time of year. Can I keep up with my workload? So the, the, the great irony of Christmas can be that the most joyous, peaceful, Encouraging time of year becomes a time of stress and frustration and ulcers and debt. And, and it takes us away from the, the real meaning of Christmas. So as you know, our focus for today is on peace. Last week, Scott did an incredibly great job of bringing us the concept of hope having our hope in Christ. Today, I want to talk to you about peace, finding peace. So as most of you know, if I ever speak, I try to give you one big notion of what we're trying to communicate today. So here's what I'm trying to communicate to you today. In Christ, we can find peace from and with God. In Christ, you can find peace both from and with God. And the emphasis, as you can see up on the screen, is on those prepositions. We, we need peace from God, but we also need peace with God. And we'll talk about those two things today. So, for our first major passage, let's look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, I believe that's 1147, if you have the blue Bible. Um, as you know, we have blue Bibles in the back that you're welcome to grab and keep if you like. Um, and page 1147, I believe it is, John chapter 14. Normally, I'd like to spend a lot of time developing context. The context is fairly straightforward here. It's a teaching section, but I, for time's sake, we have to get communion in as well, which we're looking forward to. 
So I will cut back on the amount of context I gain. This is known as Jesus's upper room discourse. It's his kind of one of his farewells to the disciples. So in verse 25, he says this, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give, excuse me, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So here we have the first point. We can receive peace from God through Jesus Christ. The saddest thing to me about my exercise this morning was reading article after article that had all this great advice about what's stressful and how to avoid stress. But none of them, I know they're out there, there's some out there, but none of them that came up at first on the Google search None of them mentioned Jesus. None of them mentioned the fact that in Christ, we have a peace that passes all understanding. When Jesus left, he said, it's better for you that I'm not here because when I leave, God is going to give you the Holy Spirit in my name. And he's going to give you peace. And it's not a kind of peace that's just, oh, groovy. We feel good and we hang out together. It's a kind of peace that lasts through the most stressful moments. It's the kind of peace that God can give to you while you're hanging upside down being crucified as Peter was because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. That's real peace. It's not some sort of temporal peace that can be given through medication or drugs or singing kumbaya together in a circle. We can receive peace from God in Jesus Christ. So when you, if you're a believer here today, God has given you the Holy Spirit as a way of giving you peace. So the question for us is, do we access it? Do we access it? You know, I'm a... I fully believe that in this Christmas time, if you allow it, it will cause you stress. If you don't focus on the true meaning of Christmas, you're going to buy all the extra gifts because you got to please all the children and you got to live up to the Joneses and you got to get the new car with the ribbon on top just like the commercial, and you're going to create stress for yourself in January. And we're, believer or unbeliever, we're able to create a whole bunch of stress for ourselves and not access the peace that God can give us just by being thoughtful and considerate of what the true meaning of the season is. And I don't even think that's just the piece that this text is talking about. I'm just thinking that's the kind of piece that you can get from not overloading yourself with all these non-unbiblical concerns that create stress in your life. And we bring that upon ourselves. 
And those aren't the kinds of things that I think that we should be praying that God would give us peace from. If we live unwise, unbiblical lives, I don't think it's fair for us to go, hey, Jesus, please spare me from the stress. I think God would call us to ask for the right kind of peace in the right kind of moments and then work on our lives and fix the things we need to fix so we're not creating this extraneous stress by having an unbiblical view of finances, about gift giving, about the purpose of Christmas. Is there enough money for gifts? Will my kids be happy with my gifts? If those are the kinds of questions you're asking, you're bound to have stress because those are the wrong kinds of questions to be asking. The right kind of question to be asking is this, how can I help my children understand through gift giving that this is about Jesus coming to earth, dying for us as a gift? You see the difference? That's huge. That's a huge difference. Do I have to see that person at the gathering? That may be a real stress, and I'm not downplaying the trauma that some people have experienced in family and through relationships. But the real question might be something like, how can I minister to that person this Christmas? Do you see? This shift in perspective can relieve stress. And and that's not even the stress that the scriptures are talking about. And if there are real stresses in your lives, ask God for the peace and he will give it to you. The peace that passes understanding. It's ours to access through prayer, through meditation. Those are the kinds of things that we can do that help with the real problems that need peace. But first, let's fix the problems that cause the grief in the first place. But we can receive peace from God. And if you're here today and you're suffering from some sort of stress that has got you down and it's legitimate and it's not simply brought upon by yourself and it's not something you can fix with a a very simple switch in your life, God has peace for you. Maybe you're really stuck on your finances. Maybe you've gotten yourself into patterns of spending that are not good stewardship and you need some help in knowing how to dig yourself out of the cycle that you're in. Frustration with your finances, deciding you're going to live by a budget, blowing it, being mad at yourself, going out and spending more because you're mad at yourself to try to cover that. Whatever that cycle is you're in, we, there's help for you. God has help for you. For some, it might be signing up for an upcoming class on something like Financial Peace University where you can get a hold of your finances to help with that stress. If you have anything like that, we'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to talk to you about it. But there's other kinds of stress that are, I don't want to say the others aren't illegitimate, but more legitimate stresses that God offers peace through. Maybe you're going through persecution at work. Maybe you're standing up for your testimony for Jesus Christ and you're suffering because of it. God has peace for you. If you'll access it, if we'll access it. God had peace for me. God has peace for me if I'll access it. Maybe you're going through a situation in your family where you've got family members who are wandering 
There's peace for you. There's peace for you as you pray, as you meditate on the scriptures, as you seek peace from the Lord. So the sad part for me on this first part is really this first part that I just got done talking about, that we can have peace from God. That's only accessible to the believers. That's only accessible to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you're here today, you're in either one of those other two categories. If you're a bit of a dabbler or if you're an unbeliever, this next point is more for you. And I'm going to say some hard things, and I say it with the utmost of compassion in my heart, but I need to be very forthright with you because you can't have peace from God until you have peace with God. We can't have peace from God until we have peace with God. And let me be very, very clear what I'm saying here is if you are not a believer, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God is your enemy. God is your enemy. He's your enemy because you're at war with him. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. God loves you. It doesn't mean that he has... uh, hateful thoughts for you. That's not the case. But that still, because of your rebellion to God, he is your enemy. And today is about peace. And so my challenge to you would be to acknowledge the fact that without Christ, God is your enemy so that you would turn and you would repent and you would experience both peace with God so that you can experience the peace from God. And for that second point, I'd like to go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is so many people's favorite book, for good reason. It is probably the most thorough discussion of the gospel of Christ. And it's as... Most of us have heard around here, the term gospel actually means good news, right? And so you say, well, Dave, you're being very, very negative today. Yeah, because there is no good news without first hearing the bad news. There's no good news without the bad news. So here's some of the good news first. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16 and following, and that, I believe that's 1159? Nope. Oh, I did, 95, 1195, there we go. 1195 in the Blue Bible. Paul lays out his theme for the book of Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's some good news for you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, which is another way of saying he is proud of the gospel. If Paul was proud of anything, he was proud of the gospel because in it, God reveals his righteousness. God gives us access to his righteousness. Now, if you're here today and you don't think righteousness is something you need, let's look at 18 and following. 
And this is the bad news before the good news. So in verse 18 through 32, what we're going to essentially see is we're going to see that Paul says, the reason you need the righteousness of God is because you're under God's wrath. Now, you may be a believer today, but at one point in your life, you were under God's wrath. And if you are a believer today, it's because that you're a believer in Christ, because you have been justified by faith, that you no longer are God's enemy, and you now are a recipient of his love and his grace instead of his wrath. So he says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Wow, this is really negative, Dave. This is supposed to be peace. We'll get there, I promise. But this is what he says. God's wrath is being poured out and is being revealed. The Greek there, won't go into details, is talking about the fact that there is an ongoing pouring out of God's wrath upon humankind. Why? Against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, most of us are used to our culture portraying God as a white-bearded Santa Claus figure who doles out gifts and kindness. So we're not used to the God of wrath. But I dare say that I could have a conversation with each of you and I could push each of you based on your background and I could get at least... Give me 10, 20 minutes. I could get you to admit that you probably want a God who's angry. Do you really want a God who's not angry at pedophiles? Serious question. Do you want a God who's not going to punish pedophiles? Do you want a God who's not going to punish Hitler? So those of you here who may be either in the dabbling or in the unbeliever status and, and you're, you really struggle with this idea and I'm not downplaying your struggle with that thought. Sin is real and hurt is real and evil is real and God punishes evil and that's a good thing and that's a good thing. And so don't let that be a reason why you reject Christianity. Because the bottom line is if you've suffered enough or if you've had a family member that was murdered or if you've had really, really bad things happen to you, you want vindication. And God is good and he vindicates evil. Now let's grade that back though. Because it's easy to point fingers at other people, isn't it? Well, Hitler, I can always use Hitler. He's easy. I can use a pedophile. He's easy. What about all the hurt that I've inflicted on other people? Is that sin too? Is that worthy of God's wrath? And we all said yes, right? So I'm worthy of God's wrath because of my unrighteousness. Because of my sin. 
And that's why I needed Jesus. And that's why I needed God to intervene in my life, sending Christ to die and take my punishment. Substitute for me, substitutionary atonement. So that gives me peace with God. But let's go back to Romans chapter 1. So he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he makes a really interesting statement at the end there. He says, Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now he's going to explain it more fully, but let me kind of set up the next few verses here. He's basically going to say this. Everyone is under God's wrath. And you say, well, that might not be fair because not everybody hears about God. Not not everybody knows about God. Uh, False. Everybody knows about God. But the Bible isn't everywhere. The missionaries haven't gone everywhere yet. There are places in the world that have not heard the name of Jesus. True. But they all know about God, and they all know they need to obey him. That's the clear teaching of scripture. And here's the problem. When they do all their unrighteousness, they're suppressing the truth that's there. They're pushing it down. And the the word is actually kind of pretty close to our word to hold back or to push down. So the picture is this truth is kind of bubbling up. And uh, in all of us as unbelievers, before we came to Christ, we suppressed that truth. We suppressed that truth. We fought that truth, and we suppressed it. Look what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because because God has shown it to them. So there is no person that has an excuse. I never knew God. Why? God revealed himself to everyone. Not the gospel, but himself. Enough to make us accountable so look what he says verse 19 continues because God has shown it to them for verse 20 for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse so this is what God is teaching through Paul. He says the whole created order is screaming out the existence of God. And if people deny it today, it's because they've suppressed that truth. They've suppressed it. They've suppressed it. They've suppressed it so much that they now have an unfit mind. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But notice what he says at the end of verse 20. The last sentence there is sad but true. So they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. So before I came to Christ, even if I'd never heard the gospel, I was accountable because I knew about God from the created order. He's been screaming this out to the whole world until now. And we've been suppressing it, pushing it down, suppressing it, suppressing it, suppressing it. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. You see what he's talking about there? 
When you suppress the truth about God, you end up replacing God with idols. Images of humans. Modern man doesn't have images of humans. We've just made man the ultimate thing. Right? Man is the end of all things. Humanism. We've replaced God with man or ourselves. In olden times, they replaced God or in some places in our world with idols that look like humans or idols that look like animals. Or if you go to certain places, combinations of animals. But it's all a reflection, not of their desire to worship God. It's a reflection of their desire to replace God. Because the fundamental problem that we have as individuals is we want to be autonomous. We want to be autonomous. We want to be God. We don't want to be the God of the universe. We just want to be the God of our universe. I'm going to come back to verse 24 in a moment. Oh, sorry. I'm going to come back to verse 26 in a moment. But I want to hit 28 through the end and then come back to 26. I'm not skipping it. But in verse 28, he says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's the truth suppression. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And remember, when they say they, I'm including all of us. Even if you were a believer, you were here at one point in your life, correct? So I'm going to say we. And since they, that is we, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Any of us not fit one of those categories, if not multiple categories there? And here's where we are in our culture. Though they know God's righteous decrees and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I I think it may have even gone a step further than that. Because now, they just don't want you to allow them to live however they want to live. They want you to actively approve and encourage how they want to live. And that's a reflection of rebellion against God. Now, I am going to hit verse 26. And it's a particularly hot topic. And so I'm not going to avoid it because it's in the text. But I want to say right from up front that there are all sorts of sins in the Bible. And whatever sin you happen to struggle with the most, it doesn't make you any less or more of a better person than anybody else. Because we're all fallen and we're all sinful and we all have the sins we struggle with. But Romans talks about this because he's explaining in Romans that the Gentiles are 
under God's condemnation. That's what we're looking at now. He's going to go on to talk about how the Jewish people were under condemnation. The biggest difference between a Judeo-Christian ethic and a non-Judeo-Christian ethic is sexual. Judeo-Christian ethic, and particularly a Christian ethic, one of the biggest differences between all other ethical systems is Christianity has a very specific sexual ethic. One man, one woman coming together in covenant relationship for forever on this earth. And that's an expression that God created. And so we're not going to make anybody out to be a more sinful person than anybody else by pointing those truths out. But we're also not going to affirm and deny that those are true biblical ethics. We're, may I just share what we need to be? We need to be so upholding of the biblical ethical standard of sexuality that people hate us. But we should be so loving that they can't stay away from this group of people. Does that make sense? We need to be accepting only in the sense of welcoming people, loving them, treating them with full dignity and respect, but at the same time being able to say to them, if you're disobeying God's standard for marriage or sexuality, you're sinning and you need to repent and you need to believe. And we need to affirm the biblical standard, not affirm whatever everybody else wants to do and wants you to accept and encourage. Amen? So some of you may have struggled. You go, well, well if, if marriage is supposed to be a man and a woman, then why do people struggle with same-sex attraction? Fair question. And the Bible answers that question. And I, let, me, let me tell you, this is not me sitting back throwing rocks. Because I have my own sets of sins that I struggle with. So I'm only dealing with this. This is part of the text. And this is where our culture is at right now. And we need to hit this. But same-sex attraction in a group this size, I would say probably we have at least 10 to 20 people in here who either have or are or will struggle with same-sex attraction. And that's part of living in a fallen world. And so we can't sit and put our heads in the sand and act like it's not real. And we have to be forthright in saying we need to love and accept anybody with any kind of sexual attraction that's non-biblical but at the same time, hope hold a biblical standard. So what's the cause of alternative sexualities, if you will? This is what verse 26 says. It's a result of truth suppression. It's a result of truth suppression. This is what he says. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So if you struggle here and you struggle with same-sex attraction, it's a manifestation of one of the manifestations that we listed out in verses 19 through the end of, or verses 28 through the end of the verse. It's the manifestation of sinfulness that you struggle with. And there are other Christians like you. I first met 
the same-sex attracted Christian when I was in college. And I was an RA, and one of the students that I was mentoring revealed that to me. And he has lived a life of obedience since that day, fully committed, and he's married, and he has children, and he still deals with same-sex attraction. Guess what? This church has people in it that are that way, who struggle with that, and we need to be able to welcome them and encourage them in their faith, even while upholding a biblical standard. So if you feel like I'm picking on you, I'm only pointing this out because of it's in this verse and we don't skip verses when we do biblical preaching. But I want you to know that we all struggle with sins and we have different struggles that we deal with and we want to help you whatever those happen to be. And I want to—I asked my son if he'd be an illustration for me. Drew, are you able to be here? Come on up. Okay, I, as he's coming up, um, I, I want to point out, again, verse 20. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. <laughs> and this is not to say that he has a debased mind. This is my son, if you didn't know. Okay, so he, here, is, here is the setup, okay? Um, as individuals, we all have our propensities towards certain sins, Right? And as we were suppressing the truth, as we were suppressing the truth, God's holding us back. God's holding us back. God's holding us back. And so I'm going to illustrate that. Drew is going to be very kind, and he's going to start running that way. I'm doing it far from the edge and away from the fire hazard. All right. And so he, you, you know what to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So he's going to pull. Now imagine this is, I'm God in this scenario, right? Now go ahead and pull. And, right? As soon as I let go, what happened? Boom, he shot out. Thank you. You're a good man, sir. So, so the point is, when we suppress the truth, God's holding us back. God's holding us back. God's holding us back. And at some point, he says, okay, you want to go there? You're going to go there. Bah. And he lets you go, and you go shooting out of that gate. And who knows where you're going to go? That's how it is with true suppression. That's how it is with true suppression. Wow, that was depressing. But it should be. Because that's what makes the gospel such good news. Whatever your sin you struggle with. Let's just read that full list again. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, uh, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Well, that's a mouthful. Whatever it is that you struggle with today, at some point in your life, God let you go and you took off on that path. And if God didn't intervene in your life, who knows where you would have ended up? And some of you ended up a long way away before you came back. And you know what that is like. But the great news is, there's the gospel. So I love the fact that so many times the worship team has verses picked. And we didn't, sometimes we talk to the worship team about what I'm going to do. But the worship team quoted the verse that we're going to kind of close up with today. 
Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are no longer under God's wrath. There's no gospel without wrath. There's no gospel, there's no good news without the truth that this world is in trouble and we were in trouble. And some of us in this room are still in trouble. Let's talk a little application. Let's, let's put our feet to this. Question, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? I'm assuming that there are a number of people in this church who are in that kind of dabbler category. And there may be things like God's wrath or what God teaches about homosexuality or marriage. Maybe those things are a struggle for you. I would plead with you to come to grips with the truths of God's word, that you would submit yourselves to those, that you would live in a way that would be pleasing to God, but not as a way of salvation, but because you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you've accepted the peace that he offers. And if you're here and this is new to you, I think your hair's probably blown back today. Um, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. The reason why those of us here who are fully committed, all in, nothing's going to stop us for Jesus, it's because we understand the gospel. We understand just how lost we were. And when you understand how lost you were, you will never live your life again once you convert. You will never live your life the way you did before you converted. There we go. Now, because then, if you come to God, come to Jesus, if you are justified by faith, you have peace with God. Now that gives you access to the unbelievable peace that the Holy Spirit can shed abroad in our hearts. Do you need that kind of peace today? Maybe you need to talk to somebody about how to access it. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about getting some things lined up in your life that will lower the stress levels in your life on top of getting peace from God. And then since it's Christmas season... Let me just strongly encourage you. Let's lower the stress level in our lives by bringing Jesus back into Christmas. Because after all, if we don't talk about Jesus, it's probably not really Christian, is it? Right? So I guess that brings us to the peace candle. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let's pray. Father, I'm blown away by your grace. And Lord, it would not be grace if we didn't speak the truth about just how lost I was, how lost everybody in this room is or was. We truly thank Thank you that it's good news. We truly thank you that you paid with your own son 
Lord, I know I wouldn't give up my son for other people. And yet you did that. You did that for me. You did that for all of us. You did that for the world. And we pray that we would be the kind of shining light here in Midland that just screams forth your grace. Lord, help us to live lives of obedience because we love you so much for what you've done for us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.